Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to all the dads here. And Steve Hom, thank you for that video. Uh, amen and amen. That was well done. Well, my name is Clint Arnold. I'm preaching this morning. Uh, Dennis is with his family in Durango, Colorado. So pray that he can forget about a lot of stuff and just relax and enjoy his family. But what a great dad. Today is Father's Day, and I can begin by saying that I am a father. I've got three boys the Lord has blessed me with, and I have been very happy to be a dad. I've enjoyed being a dad very much, and some of you probably know my kids. Jeff, the real tall one that goes around here with Carrie, they're off to Unleash today, and some of our high schoolers will be going down there for the Unleash camp. And Dustin, my middle son, uh, is goes to a different church and married to Haley, great guy. And then Brandon, my youngest, hangs out with the junior hires, but he's off at Forest Home uh, right now. So I've really enjoyed being dad. And one of the reasons for that is God's blessed me with some great kids. Uh, But uh, there's also sad parts to the story too, because... uh, Um, My experience with uh, dads wasn't so great. I've gone through two different dads, and there's been pain and disappointment. Uh, There's been brokenness and uh, a lot of stuff in family relationships that just hasn't been very healthy. And when people ask me, how many brothers and sisters do you have? It's hard even to know how to answer that, because I've got a half-brother, a half-sister, a step-brother, two stepsisters, and then one we found out about a few years ago. So, <laughs> so a lot of things with my family life uh, weren't great, but I remember looking forward to the day I could raise my own family, and uh, the most important thing that ever happened to me is the Lord Jesus Christ getting a hold of my life and turning me around, giving me hope, giving me purpose, and then being involved in a body of believers where I could see and learn from other dads. What does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to live this out as a, as a Christian father? And so I could name a whole litany of people this morning that I am so grateful to because of the formative impact that they have in my life. So I know that Father's Day can be a mixed bag. Some of us carry some pain with us on this. Some of us are so grateful for the great fathers that the Lord has given us. But the one thing that all of us have in common is that we have a perfect father, We have a perfect Heavenly Father that encapsulates within the Word of God uh, what it means to be a good dad. And so we want to look at this this morning and to uh, look at what the Scripture has to say. But I need to say this, we are uh, going to continue in our series through the book of Acts this morning. So if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21 through 16, that will be our focus text and our go-to text today, and we will begin there. So no special Father's Day message today, focused and camped on Father's Day. But I got to tell you this, uh, I've written a commentary on Acts, and I've spent a lot of time in the book of Acts. I absolutely love it because it's so exciting to see what God's done. And as I was spending time in preparation for this message today and looking through Acts 21 through 16, we're going to read it, and you're going to think, wow, how would you preach that kind of thing? Because it's all this traveling and a lot of disconnected, seemingly disconnected things. And yet I realize there is a central message to the text that we're looking at today that 
makes this whole thing cohere and makes it all hang together. And I realized this is the perfect message for Father's Day. So we are having a Father's Day message, after all, out of Acts 21 through 16. So open your Bibles and we'll uh, read this passage together. Well, I'll read it and you can follow along. And we'll, um, I'll make a few comments along the way. And what I'm going to do this morning is we'll read through the text with a few comments along the way, and then I'll stand back and make some observations about how, what are some of the central things that kind of emerge from this passage that could be a good message for us as fathers. So follow along with me in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. You'll remember when Dennis finished last uh, time we were together, Paul was in Ephesus, the big city of Ephesus, and we left with this big mob scene in the theater at Ephesus, and after that, he had to leave town, after that big chant, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, that went on. Uh, So Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. I'm going to pause right there. Two and a half verses, and in these two and a half verses, the span of over a year passes. There is so much more that Luke, when he's telling this story, could have told us. Because there are great distances traveled, one way and then back again, and a lot of key events that happen there. Basically, Paul goes north and around this big arc and revisits certain cities that he had, uh, where there were churches that he had planted. Macedonia, when you read Macedonia, you can think Thessaloniki and Philippi. And we know from his letters to Thessalonians and the and Philippians that he wrote to these places. Down in Greece, we can think Athens and Corinth. Likely, he went to Corinth and spent most of that time, those three months. But these are key places. It's also a time, and I wish Luke could have told us more about this, while Paul is in Macedonia, that's when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians that we know as 2 Corinthians. Uh, He's on his way to visit them, and he writes this letter in preparation. He goes to Corinth, he spends three months there, and it's during that three months that he writes his letter to the Romans. Uh, So the book of Romans was written right in this time, yet we would never know that unless we pieced all this together. But if you read 2 Corinthians and Romans together with this passage, you'll see the way these things all flow together. We don't have time for that today, though. So he's in Greece for three months, And there he spent those three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, Syria is the location where his sending church, the church at Antioch, was located, and it would be on his way then to Jerusalem, he decided to return through Macedonia. So that means he goes north from uh, Corinth, and he goes back up to Philippi and Thessaloniki, maybe Berea, and he goes in that direction. And then Luke says uh, a variety of people who accompanied Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, 
and the Asians Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And I'll pause for a moment there and just say, we often think of Paul as kind of this amazing uh, apostle that was kind of almost a lone ranger. He was just out there going off on these missionary journeys and just, it's easy to visualize him doing this all by himself. But we read the text very carefully and we realize, no, he always had a big team with him. And here he indicates some of those people. And there's more, actually, as well. I might also point out the fact that the wording changes. Uh, The narrator of this story uh, now injects himself into the story. And so you'll notice it says in verse 5, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Which means Luke has now joined this group. And they are at Troas together. But we sailed away from Philippi, and after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So he gives a time marker for this, the days of unleavened bread. This is just immediately before the Passover celebration. So we're talking springtime. We're talking uh, uh, probably in April. And Paul, it will find out, is trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, which is 50 days after the time of Passover. Then the second part of the story. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where, they, where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, and I can't help but say, if you look at that word and break it apart, it means uh, good luck. <laughs> Doesn't quite fit, but maybe the end of the story, he lives up to that. So Eutychus, the good luck kid, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now think about this for just a little bit. Uh, In the ancient world, there were multi-story buildings. In fact, in the urban centers, there were often three to five-story buildings, and they called them insulas. And the upper levels were apartments, and the lower levels were the shops. So these kinds of buildings were all over in the Roman world. So a third story, yeah, that's, you're going to see that kind of thing. So Paul went down then and bent over him and took him and taking him in his arms said, Don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Not a little comforted. So Dennis said I had to say something about that. And so I looked that up in the Greek, and if you translate it very literally, it means not a little. (laughs) I don't know what else to say, George. (laughs) I just, okay. (laughs) 
It's just Paul's or Luke's way of saying it. Verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when we met at Assos, he took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, an island. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. That's our passage for the day. And you've wondered, what's the Father's Day message out of this uh, incredible travel story of Paul and everything? And I've pulled two very important lessons out for fathers. So you ready? Shall we go for it? Lesson number one. Dads like boats. <laughs> they like to go with their friends on boats, but usually with a fishing pole. Lesson number two. Dads tend to talk too long and bore kids to death with their long lectures. So let's unpack point number one. Dads like boats. No, we won't do that. What I would like to do, however, before we get into the points of the message, are you guys up for seeing some pictures? Okay, I love pictures. I love pictures. Even though I'm colorblind, I love pictures. I got a few pictures for this travelogue here. So let me see if I can find my clicker. Okay, we've got it. So... Let me, uh, let me just give you a bit of an orientation as to where we were, since there's just so many place names and everything. Uh, what's happened? So here is Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. This is modern-day Turkey. Smyrna is where the modern city of Izmir is located today, the third largest center of city in Turkey. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and so he's finished his time there. They've had the big mob scene in the theater at Ephesus, and now he is going to go north and to Troas for a little bit, and then over here to Philippi, Thessaloniki, Berea. This is Macedonia. Macedonia is the region name. And then he's going to go south to Greece. And so back then they called this area Greece, not the northern part, Athens and Corinth. And so that is uh, where the city of Corinth is. So we get there in the first couple of verses, and then instead of catching a boat here at Centrea and going over to Jerusalem, because of the plot against him, he decides to go north, goes back through uh, Greece and Macedonia, and from Philippi, he takes a boat across to Troas. He's at Troas, Assos, and then he gets on the boat at Assos, and the boat passes Chios and Samos, and he bypasses Ephesus altogether, and comes to Miletus, which is this coastal town right here. So everybody got that? Can you pass your geography exam tomorrow morning at 7.30? No, just kidding. So next slide. So here is the big theater at Ephesus, the road that comes up from the harbor, the theater that can hold 24,000 people. This was a city of a quarter of a million. This is where 
Dennis had us last week in Acts chapter 19. Beautiful, beautiful sight. I had the privilege of leading a tour there last year with a number of people that are even here in our midst today, and it was a great, uh, fun time together. Next slide. And from the theater, which is really well-preserved, you can see, and this is exactly the theater that we read about last week. Next. From there, Paul goes north, travels through Macedonia, and then down to Corinth. And there's uh, a lot to see in Corinth today. This is the main road, and this is an Acropolis, a city on a hill at the top of what we call the Acro-Corinth today. But the city of Corinth, where Paul would have spent time, is right here. Next. And the port city for Corinth is a city called Centrea. Paul would have been ready to leave by ship from this port. There's not much left of it. And the journey would have taken him on to Antioch of Syria. Uh, But he makes a change of plans and then goes uh, north through Macedonia, up through Philippi, Thessaloniki, and then over to Troas. Now, Troas sounds very similar to Troy. And you may know about Troy if you've read Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. That is just a few miles north of there. So this is the Roman city of Troy, or Troas. But it's very close to the ancient historical Greek famous city of Troy. And this is where the Eutychus situation happened. But this is a harbor city. There's not much that's been excavated there. uh, But that would have been the outlines of the ancient harbor. Next. And Paul goes to Assos next, and he takes a Roman road to Assos, where the rest of the group went by boat. This is the remains of the actual Roman road that went from Troy to Assos. And not all of it's been uncovered, but you can see portions of it all along the way. I look at this and I think, wow, that's amazing. We make good roads too. You know, 2,000 years from now, somebody's going to dig up Imperial, and they're going to think, that's Imperial Highway from, you know, from a long time ago. (laughs) So uh, next, please. So this is uh, a temple that was on the hill just above Assos. And so this is a picture of Assos. Next. And then the coastline, so you can imagine the boat that Paul was getting on and embarking here and then going down the Turkish, we know it as the Turkish coast, but then it would have been Roman Asia. Next. And then on his way to uh, Miletus, which is located right here. And I thought I had put in for you my slides of Samos, but I've been to Samos. Barbara and I were there exactly 30 years ago this month and had some pictures there. But your family is from Samos, so it's a real place. So, (laughs) cool. And uh, Miletus is where Paul ended up, sailing past uh, Ephesus for the sake of time and then calling the elders of the Ephesian church there. So that's it. You can shut that off now. So back to the passage That gives us an overview of all the movements and travel in the passage, but what is the point of what Paul is, or what Luke is trying to say here? As I read this passage uh, in preparation for this week, I I kept thinking, how do you pull all this together, all this travel stuff, and not just bore people to death? 
and what is the point of some of this passage? And then it hit me. Follow me in verses 1 and 2. There's a word that reappears here, uh, and then the ideas of the passage emerge that are consistent with the word. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. What's that word that pops up twice? Encouragement. Now listen to this. When Paul wrote a letter to Macedonia a few years earlier, to the Thessalonians, he said this. He compares himself, he uses a lot of metaphors, but he compares himself to an innocent child. And he said, when I was with you, I was like a mother because of the tender love and affection that I had for you. But he said, when I was with you, I was also like a father. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For Paul encouragement was an essential part of his apostolic ministry. It was an essential part of what it meant for him to be a church planner in multiple sites and to take care of these flocks. In fact, I would say that the main point of the passage is this, of these, of these uh, 16 verses, and that is that one of the crucial duties of a father is to give encouragement. Now, I don't know if we think about that, us dads think about that very much, because it's easier and more common, I think, to think of the dad as providing leadership. He's the head of the home and provides leadership and guidance to his family. He's the one that provides for his family. He's the one that loves his family. He gives discipline. Fathers fix things that get broke. They're the ones that mow the lawn and cut the grass sometimes. Uh, We think of a lot of different things, but sometimes the thought of encouragement as an essential part of what it means to be a dad is missing. And as I look at this passage, I think the words encouraging and encouragement appear in this passage, and then everything we see in this passage revolves around this idea of encouraging. And so I want to develop that with you uh, this morning and talk about encouragement as an actually a function of spiritual leadership. Encouragement is a very important function of spiritual leadership, and it's a very important duty and responsibility of any dad. In getting oriented to this a little bit, I'd like you just to pause for a second, take a breath, and I would like you to think back of your childhood. Now, I could ask it this way, how many of you had a dad? Well, okay, everybody did. (laughs) Now, sometimes it was a mixed bag, but dads aren't altogether bad. And think of a way that your dad encouraged you. Can you think of a way, a concrete way, that your dad encouraged you? 
could be something little, could be something big. I sat down this week and tried to do that. I asked Barbara to do that too. And it was fun to reflect on childhood and think positively about things like this. One of the things that came to my mind was when I was a sophomore in high school, I was playing football, and I had a coach that I didn't like very well. I could think of a lot of things to call him, and I won't do it now. Um, But I felt he had something against me. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. And it was a trial. My sophomore year was a trial because of just putting up with this coach. And one day, the coach called me into his office and said he wanted to talk to me. And it was mid-year, mid-football season. And that Friday, we were to take a bus trip on a long road trip to play a game way up in the Central Valley. And he called me in. I sat down in his office, and he says, Clint, I want you to help me out this Friday. And I thought, oh, great. He's telling me I'm starting. <laughs> and I wasn't starting yet. And so I was, I was kind of waiting for that exciting news to break. And he said, I want you to sit this one out. I'd like you to stay home this week, and uh, we don't have enough room on the bus for everybody, and I think you, you need to stay home this week. And I, I just, it was devastating to me. You know, I don't know if you played sports, you're the left one, you're the person left out. It's just so hard. So I went, went back to class, made it through that day, and then when I got home, the only thing I could think about doing was I just wanted to go be near my dad. And so drove out to the farm, and he was working with some equipment, and I crawled up on the equipment and rode some of the rounds with him, told him the story, and I wanted to hear from him how mad and disgusted he was at the coach. I wanted him to encourage me at that point in time. And he did, and it felt so good for someone to be able to identify with the pain I was experiencing, to be angry at the injustice or perceived injustice uh, that was done to me. And it was so encouraging to have somebody on my side, somebody on my team that was, uh, that was there for me. And that physical presence was really important, to be with him at that time. And the words were really important, although there weren't many words shared. There were enough words that it was very, very encouraging. So I don't know what your thoughts are. Maybe today at lunch you could talk about those ways that Dad was an encouragement to you. That would be a great, upbeat conversation for lunchtime. But I think of the Apostle Paul. He is getting on, he's traveling hundreds of miles He's going back. He's already planted churches in Philippi and Thessaloniki and Berea and Athens and Corinth and all the way down there. And why not just get on the boat and go to Jerusalem? I mean, he wants to be there really soon, and he could be there for some of the other festivals. But what he chooses to do is to invest time and money to go and revisit these churches and spend a lot of time with them for the purpose, for the sole purpose of encouraging them. That's what it says in verses 1 and 2. And I think, wow, what an example. Uh, He isn't out there just preaching the gospel, getting people saved. He is equally concerned about getting people together into new communities 
teaching them, and encouraging them in their walks with the Lord. And that is so crucial to his ministry. And it's a great lesson for us as dads, too. People need encouragement. Our kids need words of encouragement, and they need our physical presence. And this is a key part of what it means to bring encouragement. So for us as dads, let's think about that in deeper ways. Even if our kids are 30 years old, how can we bring words of encouragement? How can we be present with our kids to give them encouragement? But it's a a role for all of us in ministry as well. So encouragement through presence and words, verses 1 to 6. The second section, the story of Eutychus, verses 7 through 12, also points to encouragement as a theme. And I'm going to say encouragement through care. Encouragement through care. It's a crazy story. A kid falls out of a window, and he's laying there on the ground dead. Three stories he falls and hits the ground. I don't know if he hit uh, pavement or if he hit a couple of bushes. and We just don't know the whole story, but they thought he was dead. And he could have been, and he was. And yet, what I see in Paul is not only this amazing miracle... But there's something very touching in this story that I noticed. And look at verse 10. Paul went down and bent over him and took him up into his arms. That is just a very tender way to do this. He didn't stand at a distance and command him to be healed. He just had this care and compassion that scooped him up and held him. And In the midst of all of this, God did an utterly amazing thing in their midst. And this kid was brought back to life. Now, I have to say, this is exceptional. This stuff doesn't happen every day. I don't know if I ask the question, have any of you seen anyone brought back to life? I don't know how many people in here could really honestly raise their hands on that. It is truly exceptional. In fact, as we think back of the events over this past week, there are nine families in Charleston, South Carolina that would so much want to scoop up their loved ones in the arms and pray that God would bring them back to life. And maybe some of them asked, but it wasn't answered. Nine people died in Charleston through a hideous act of violence. It doesn't happen every day that someone brought back to life But in this instance, it did, and it it served to further the gospel. It served a variety of God's purposes, but it's God's call. It's God's call, and we have to leave it with him. And I think as I reflect on what does it mean to ask God for something big, like a healing, like a miracle of some sort, we have to acknowledge God's sovereignty But we have every right to ask him. Because God is a loving and merciful Heavenly Father. And as I've thought about God's relationship to us through the prism of relating to my kids, and I used to tell my kids, you can ask me for anything. I just may not give it. (laughs) But I'm going to make a decision on giving it to you guys based on whether it's good for you or not and based on whether we can afford it or not. And I might surprise you sometimes. 
And I think God responds to us that way. I believe that God is pleased if we ask him. So when we are faced with a situation where there's some grievous thing happening, as a loving Heavenly Father, He invites us to ask Him. We can ask Him. And sometimes you have not because you ask not, He tells us. But we have the privilege of asking Him. But on the other hand, we defer to Him. Lord, we defer to Your wisdom. You know the big story and you know what's best. But the cool thing is, sometimes God intervenes and does something really, really big and miraculous. Craig Allen shared a few weeks ago about a sister uh, who was very, very ill, and they were family and friends and church were praying for God to do something really big. And lo and behold, God did, and there was a healing. And how encouraging is that? It's the exception, it's not the rule. But we have the opportunity to ask. I brought two books this morning that I wanted to show you as we thought about the Eutychus thing. The title of these books, it's volumes one and two, it's called Miracles. It's a friend of mine who wrote this, these two volumes. They were published not that long ago by Baker Bookhouse. His name is Craig Keener. Craig is a professor who did his doctoral work at uh, Duke University. He's an eminent and well-known scholar, highly respected in the Guild. And Craig has written two books related to miracles. And these are not just scholarly treatments, although there's a lot of scholarly detail in here about Hume and the philosophers and philosophical ideas of miracles and everything. But these books also contain hundreds and hundreds of case studies of miracles that God has accomplished in the last few decades. Documented case studies of amazing things that God has done uh, in these last few decades. Here with all the documentation to demonstrate that. A year ago, I listened to Craig Keener speak about these books at a scholarly conference on this, and he was giving a PowerPoint presentation, and he showed pictures with some of the documentation, and this is to a group of scholars from all over the world, and he's showing these pictures and giving some of the case studies as to what was going on, and one of the stories that he told is a story of a Nigerian man named Ayo. He has a really long name, but I'll just call him Ayo. That's what he goes by. But Ayo, he told the story of Ayo, who his wife in Nigeria was pregnant and gave birth to their son. And as they were in the medical facility where the son was born, the son was born, stillborn, and he was dead. And he was um, pronounced officially dead. And the family was heartbroken. Those who had gathered were heartbroken. The church was heartbroken because this event was just dashed by the reality and harsh reality of the death of this little boy. So they prayed. They prayed for God to do something amazing and miraculous. And the boy came back to life. And it's just hard to believe 
but it was real. I mean, in the sense that here's a scholar telling a scholarly audience about this case and, and uh, documentation and things to show that the boy was pronounced dead. I was amazed, and there were a lot of other stories that were shared. And then after that, uh, as a number of people were in the book room uh, the next morning, I ran across this African-American man who recognized me, and I didn't know him, and we started talking, and I shook his hand and introduced who I was, and he mentioned who he was and where he was teaching and so on. And uh, he asked me what I thought of Craig Keener's presentation. And I said, oh, it was amazing. I, it's just so amazing to see, hear, hear these stories. And he said, you remember that story about the boy that came back to life? I said, yeah, that was crazy. That was my son. And I just, you're kidding me. And he, said, and he started telling me more about the story. And the boy has grown up. He's got a Master of Science degree. He's doing really well in everything. But it was this exceptional thing that God had done. And hopefully someday we'll see how God used that in Nigeria to bring glory to himself in a variety of ways. But it happens occasionally. And we glorify God and we magnify him when he does that sort of thing. And we have the right to ask him on occasion to do that. But what strikes me in this passage is the care that the Apostle Paul had demonstrated when he reaches down and shows that compassion and care. Showing the love of the Father and showing the kind of love and compassion and care that we can show for each other that is so much part of bringing encouragement. Then finally, and we'll conclude with this, the third point is Encouragement through giving and providing. And we look at that last section, verses 13 and following, and it seems like just a travelogue. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, and then we get all these different place names, Middle East, Chios, uh, Samos, Miletus, and Ephesus. And then at the end, it says, we were trying to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. But giving and providing, and you're asking, what does that have to do with giving and providing? And the question is, why is Paul going to Jerusalem? He wants desperately to get there by a certain time. And that's because Jerusalem was impoverished by a famine. People didn't have enough money to buy food, and there wasn't enough food to go around. And if you read 2 Corinthians really carefully, the reason Paul was going through Macedonia, uh, in addition to trying to encourage them, he was trying to gather money for a collection that he was taking to go to Jerusalem and give relief to the impoverished saints in Jerusalem and Judea at that time. He felt this could help them and it would be a great encouragement for the Gentile churches to bring to the mother church of Jerusalem funds to help in their relief in a very significant and real time of need. How encouraging this would be to the Jerusalem church to find that all of these Gentile churches cared that much. And that was part of the whole mission. So having an eye toward need 
and then responding to that need by organizing and bringing relief to touch that need. Right here in the Bible, such a big part of Paul's ministry that goes beyond just sharing the gospel, but encouraging and building up the saints. So, Acts 20, 1 through 16, Father's Day message. It's the duty and responsibility of fathers to give encouragement. And so, I would encourage you today, fathers, consider how to encourage your children. Those of us in church ministry, all of us, we're all believer priests, how can we encourage one another in the ways that we've learned in the passage today? So bow with me in prayer as we conclude our time together. Father, I thank you for this group. It's just such a joy and delight to be here with brothers and sisters here in La Habra. And I pray for your blessing on them. I pray for your blessing on all the dads present in this room, Lord, that you would do a a great and encouraging thing in their hearts today. But I pray, Lord, that you'll help all the dads to consider how to give words of encouragement and how to give presence to their children, uh, the presence of of their being in life. I pray that you'll help them also Lord, to consider how to show tender care when their kids really need a warm and caring touch or prayer for healing. And Lord, I pray that you'll help all the dads, all of us dads, to show the kind of care that gives and provides. But I pray that you would make this characteristic of our church as well, that all these things that characterize the priesthood of us who are believers, that you would make that a very, very important part of our lives, that we may encourage one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.